0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Cultures that have no written language pass on their histories by telling stories. By telling these stories, the social values, cultures, and traditions are taught to each succeeding generation. Animals often play a significant role in these stories and in the Native American traditions of the northwest part of California, the coyote is a very popular character. Dr. Victoria Patterson, an anthropologist based in Ukiah, California, has worked with the central Pomo people in Mendocino County for over 30 years. She knows the stories and she sees them as windows, allowing us to imagine How Original Native People of Northern California Thought and Lived. I met with Dr. Victoria Patterson in the studios of Radio Curious and asked her about the significance of the story where the coyote jumped off into the sky. Our discussions led to a two-part program of which this is Part 1. Both were originally broadcast in February of 1999.
1: We hear somebody tell that story today, we're reminded of something like a children's story or a myth, you know, kind of a playful, not real event, something that's sort of cute. But when you come to it from the perspective of Pomo belief system, from a Pomo cosmology, where there's a really different relationship to history than we have today. We have a relationship to history that's very linear. We make timelines all the time. What is in the past is gone. It's not retrievable to us. That's why we're so forward-looking. You know, be in the now, be in the present, because the past is gone. And uh, we believe that what's past is past. I mean, we even have metaphors that reflect that kind of belief. But the Pomo notion of history, which is not uh, which is not explicit, in other words, you can't read a book about it because there weren't any books written, has to do with uh, a notion about time as circular.
0: What do you mean, circular?
1: I mean that it's repeatable. Any event is repeatable at any time because it's not, it doesn't start from some place and go to some place else. For example? We are encapsulated in time. For example, um, because of this notion of stepping in and out of time whenever you want, you have the opportunity of interacting with anybody else at any other moment. And I'll give you an example of that um, with a story that was told by um, a man from the Cinqueon in an uh, anthropological or ethnographic text called Notes from the Cinqueon. And this story, uh, the man is telling that he was walking on a ridge towards the ocean. And the Cinqueon area of um, Mendocino County is our northwest coast, kind of where the Cinqueon interna- uh, Intertribal Wildernesses and Cinqueon uh, State
0: Wilderness Park. It's right up by Cape Mendocino, which is the westernmost part of the continental United States.
1: Right. So right that area, the Lost Coast area, sort of the southern part of the Lost Coast, was the area that was inhabited by people whom anthropologists now call Cinqueon, even though that wasn't their own name for themselves. In any case, this story is uh, the guy was walking along the ridge, and this was after whites had entered into Northern California, and there had been a lot of devastation of the tan oak. Tan oak was harvested. Just the bark was pulled off the trees to tan hides. And um, this Indian man was walking along the ridge and at the top of the ridge, he encountered Nagaicho. And my my apologies to the southern Athabascan speakers, if I don't pronounce the word right, because I don't know how to speak that language. (laughs) But anyway, Nagaicho, the creator, was on the top of the ridge. And he was really angry, and he told this man, this human being, this person telling the story, that he was so disgusted with people, they had just stripped the skins off his children, the trees, the tan oaks, and he was going to create a flood to wash them all away. So this man telling the story, the human man, said, I don't think you should do that. They don't really know what they're doing. They're like children. You know, let's forgive them. Let's let's help them learn. And Nagaicho grumbled and said, Oh, okay, this time I'll let it pass. Well, what a profound thing that is, to encounter the Creator on a mountaintop, have a conversation, and have the power to change the course of being. To say, to say that what should this be. notion, to say what should be, and this notion that you could step back into time to 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 enter what Eliada has called the auroral moment, which is what all, you know, not all, but many, many Native groups do through ceremony and ritual, is to recreate the moment of creation. But as you recreate it, you become an actual participant in it. And that's an incredible thing.
0: Recreate the moment of creation.
1: Yes. To recreate the moment of creation.
0: Which is not a concept that uh, we have <laughs> no. in the Western Judeo-Christian philosophy.
1: No, we don't, because we have this linear point of view. That happened in the past. It can't rehappen. It's already happened. It's gone. So then, Vicki, looking back
0: uh, 200 years mm-hmm. here in the Ukiah Valley, the Yokeo, uh, as it was perhaps then called, um, what was it like? Can you describe what this community looked like to a person who lived here or a person who would walk in and see it?
1: Well, of course, I can only imagine it. So, I can't really describe it. I can imagine it from the perspective I've been given from Native people who have heard about it from their ancestors and from reading um, texts and and diaries of the first uh, non-Indian people in this area because, because, as probably you know, um, all of the Northern California Native people did not have a written language, and so they didn't write anything down. As it was all oral tradition. It was all an oral tradition, with quite, quite um, distinct mnemonic techniques and quite unusual abilities to memorize and learn things immediately from an oral standpoint, which can is you, also very different than we do. Can
0: you describe? those procedures, the mnemonic, mnemonic techniques?
1: Well, some things have to do with the names of, for example, the names of some wildflowers. Wildflowers don't have a, you know, they don't have a, a use as food, but they're very beautiful. And a lot of times their names reflected their color, sky flower or oriole flower. Um, so these devices, you know, pulled together the world for you and you knew, you associated them with other things. Another example is I worked a lot with some traditional pomo singers. They expected me to hear a song once and get it. <laughs> I could never do that. And I always reverted to a pencil, you know, writing down the words, practicing over and over and over again, and they would get very frustrated because their tradition is to sing something once and somebody actually gets it. They know it after they're hearing it at one time.
0: And that still occurs now?
1: Um, I'm not so sure that it occurs now, but there are people who have the ability to do what they call catch a song. They call it, that's what they call it, they catch the song. Do
0: you think that that's um, an inherited trait among the Pomo people?
1: You know, I wouldn't go so far to say it was inherited, but like Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, I think that there were some people who were singers who had this musical intelligence, who had the ability to literally catch the songs as soon as they heard them, and to whom songs came easily in terms of composition.
0: Before we get too far away from the last question, (laughs) um, tell us what your images are. So the images, the the
1: imagination I have about this, this um, valley is I imagine it to be, it was in fact, as we know from historical record, much wetter than it is today. And so it was greener uh, for a longer period of time. Um, I've read accounts describing the central part of the Ukiah Valley with grass growing as high as a man's shoulder on horseback. That's really high grass.
0: That's a good with so, 10 feet.
1: Mm-hmm, it was very marshy in the center of the valley, as what it was in other valleys that still actually retain those names. Little Lake Valley, which is what Willits is called, was literally a lake. So it was much wetter and marshier. Because there were no controls on the Russian River as there are now, the river was very unpredictable and changed its course every year. So there were new islands being created and new meanderings. And the river, was quite central to, um, to life. Not just the river itself, but also all of the creeks and streams running into the river um, were really important. Most villages here were not built on the side of the river because of its unpredictability. It flooded every winter. And uh, so their villages were built more sort of in the foothill areas next to a creek. Um, so you would, might see the smoke coming up from brush houses not quite on the valley floor, but a little bit up from there. You might see a trail of men walking into the hills to hunt. You might see a trail of women walking to a particular gathering place to gather um, um, corms and tubers, Indian potatoes as they're called. Boo is the name in Central Pomo. Boo? Boo. You might see, um, this, you would definitely see the sparkle of, of salmon jumping up from the river because these creeks and rivers were crammed with salmon. In fact, during, during the periods of, um, of uh, when the salmon returned to their home waters, people have described the creeks so full that you could walk across the backs of the salmon. And
0: That's we don't full. see that anymore. That's full.
1: <laughs> um, you would see grizzly bears standing up around the valley like we see maybe squirrels today and grizzly bears, as you know, are extinct in California now. You might see immense flocks of birds like passenger pigeons, which are also extinct, flying overhead. And you would see absolute carpets of wildflowers in the spring, literally carpets of purple and yellow and blue wildflowers.
0: And this we know from the oral tradition that's been handed We know down. it
1: from the oral tradition. We know it from the early writings of people who travel through this area, Uh, We know uh, from some people who came early in Mendocino County, about 1852 or so, stood up on a ridge, looked towards the ocean, and saw timber. They said there was so much timber it would last till the end of time. And so the descriptions that come to us are ones of an immense uh, variety and supply of natural resources. You know, verdant valleys and Um, tree-covered hills and forests because of the practice of Indian burning. What was really wonderful is that this was all manicured. It was not wild. The chaparral wasn't around the brushy hillsides. These were manicured parks. In fact, an early description talks about the fact that you could drive a wagon with a team of six horses through the tan oak forests because there was no brush. It was just like a park, grass and trees.
0: Well, Was that because it was manicured or was it because it was the... Uh, virgin forest that allows to be able to see through the brush?
1: Well, you ask a very interesting question because this notion of virgin forest is one that we create. It's a falsity. There were people living here for, you know, at least 12,000 years before present. There was no virgin forest. They were absolutely actively exploiting the environment for that whole time period. But they practiced very specific techniques of land management. They practice yearly burning, they practice selective pruning, they pra- practice cultivation, they practiced uh, cultivating um, common species, you know, together. They didn't actually garden, but they certainly maintained and managed the environment in a quite a conscious way. They created brush corrals, they created a place where the brush um, surrounded a hill. You can still see some of these places, sometimes on mountains. And in the middle was a grassy area. They cut the brush away and it formed a natural corral because the edge was browse for deer. So the deer were literally corralled in the space. You didn't have to go searching around for them. So some of our notions of what it was like and what virgin land is like and how Indians live sort of creeping through the forest, not treading on anything, are really mythical.
0: I want to take a moment and say that I'm talking with Dr. Victoria Patterson about what the Kaya or the Yokeo Valley looked like about 200 years ago before white people or European people came here. You're listening to Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. Vicki, the um, places where things happened, uh, where coyote jumped off into the sky, or where the Bear Brothers fought. they are important elements and identification points. Tell us about them.
1: Well, there are two ways that you relate to an environment. One is in terms of the kinds of resources it provides for your survival. And in those, in that sense, um, it's important to recognize that the Poma were never a unified tribe, a large tribe, like we speak of the Navajo Nation or the Iroquois Confederacy. It was really a group of quite independent village communities of maybe, um, it's been estimated 80 perhaps to 200 people at the most.
0: Per community?
1: Per community, with their own um, leaders and their own um, source, uh, their own territories within which they gathered um, food, food resources. And in order to uh, go into another village community's territory, you had to negotiate, you know, you had to make plans. You had to tell them, can we come? And there's a lot of trade back and forth about people sharing resources. There's a certain kind of fish that exists in Lake County that exists nowhere else. And bulrushes come from Lake County and obsidian comes from Lake County. And so people would trade those things for the sedge from the Ukiah Valley or tan oaks from the coast. So there was a lot of crossing of other people's territories, but it was quite well known which part of the land belonged to which village community in fact uh, some elders have talked about um, the fact that children were taken sort of to the boundary areas and they were pointed out you know this oak tree means that our land stops here it wasn't quite the sense of ownership that we have today but it was certainly a sense of you know of the of the exclusive use of a particular area unless you chose and negotiated to share it with someone else so there was a great sense of place in that villages were often named after natural uh, occurrences around them. Um, the the uh, Shodakai, the casino we have today um, in Coyote Valley, is named after the place where it, the village that originally was became the tribe of Coyote Valley, which was called Shodakai. It was Valley in the East. And there's a village where now we have the Lake Mendocino Marina called Chachamkai, meaning live oak Valley, Live Oak Valley. And so there was a great sense of place in in naming, in naming natural resources. And the people of this area were never called Palmo by themselves. This is a name absolutely um, imposed upon them by linguists and archaeologists. What were they called? Well, they called themselves whatever place they were from. And the name you keep referring to, Yokea, Yo means south. If, If you're speaking northern Palmo, it's Kai means valley and ya means the people of that place. So we're talking about the people of the South Valley. That's what Ukiah is named after. Uh, There was a village called Pomo, actually, in what we now call Potter Valley, which was at one time called Balokai, which actually is a late name because balo refers to wild oats, which came after Europeans came into this area. Kai means valley. So each group called themselves, the name for um, the people from Willits was Mitomkai, Got Kai again, Valley miton means water splashing the toes.
0: The toes.
1: Mm-hmm. Because of the wetness of the land, so people referred to themselves by these geographical names and had a very strong sense of geographical place. Um, it's as though uh, you lived in a house that your relatives, for time from time immemorial, had inhabited. And so through your living there, you had all kinds of stories about this house, where Uncle John broke his leg, and where Aunt Mary had her baby, and where the ceiling cracked in the great rainstorm. And you know, you grew up around this environment, and it becomes very intimate and familiar. This is the nature of the Ukiah Valley to Native people. It was their house. Every hill, every creek, every spring had thousands of years of intimate stories behind it. And because of that notion of time being circular and being able to enter any time, the whole idea of Coyote being here, Coyote and all the stories from that period are really sacred stories. They're not children's stories, they're not myths, they're not fake. They're Matu, which means sacred story. It's, it's their version of what we would maybe call sacred history or, or religious history or, or whatever, something on the nature of the Bible to some people.
0: And coyote is a sacred animal.:
1: Coyote was an early being. Coyote and animal friends like Hawk and the mallard duck sisters and all of the other creatures that appear a lot in Matu in these sacred stories um, come from a time when they say people were like uh, animals were like people, and they could do the things that we today can only do in our dreams. They could, you know move from here to the coast in one step. They could, you know, fly over mountains. They could, Coyote could fall down and be chopped to pieces and regenerate himself, you know, five miles away. So it was a magical time. And during that time is when a lot of the rules and a lot of the relationships between people and the environment were established. And so it's very alive. And when you talk about where these events happened, they become part of that tapestry of your house.
0: The concept of the rules, uh, of how people relate to each other and the relationship to the environment, Tell us more about that. Uh, that's interesting, how those rules came to be and what those rules are.
1: Well, there's a, there is a, a, a kind of interesting story. You know, we don't, we don't really know. <laughs> we don't really know the tremendous depth of this culture because uh, so much um, genocide occurred and um, so much disease occurred and so much decimation of the native population occurred so rapidly that we can't even calculate how much of the richness of this culture disappeared before European people began recording it on paper, in remembering, and before life returned to a level above that of survival for Native people. Um, And so we only have what some ethnographers and anthropologists collected. And one of those was Alfred Kroeber from the University of California, who is known as the the father of California Indian anthropology. And uh, he was definitely a man on a mission, you know, to preserve, to salvage as much of what he called the pristine culture as possible, Um, you know, during around the turn of the century. And so it was rather late, it was 50 years after the first major impact of um, Europeans in this community occurred. And um, so anyway, he collected lots of stories, and some of the information that we have comes from what he collected. There's a lot of problems with the material, you know, it's in English. We don't know if people told him the story in English or not, or if he rewrote it, or if somebody translated it. And so we don't really have clarity about how accurate this is. But in any case, he put together, from talking to many, many different people, sort of a composite story of the creation of people in the Clear Lake area. And um, this is a story where Coyote is always a trickster, you know, playing tricks on people. um, tricked these sisters. He dressed up as a grandmother, and he told them to come with him up to this remote valley to pick buckeyes. But when they got there, he turned back into himself, and he raped them. And one of the si- and these girls had um, been very reluctant to get married. They had turned away many suitors before this occurred. Um, they came back and they they told the people who were absolutely infuriated by Coyote's behavior. And one of the girls gave birth to a child immediately. And the people drummed Coyote out of their community and refused to take care of the child. They shunned the child. In fact, I think he had two children (laughs) at that time. And he became really angry that they would not take care of these children, you know, who were part of the group. And so he went away uh, every day. Um, He said he was working or he was hunting or he was getting something. And he built a huge tunnel in the hillside. And this is right between Lake and Mendocino County, somewhere around the Cow Mountain area, but on the Lake County side. And every day he stuffed this tunnel with pitch and bark and wood and trees because he was planning a revenge. And um, he told the people, if you don't feed my children, I'm I'm gonna take care of you. Of course, they didn't believe him, because they were so angry at him. In any case, to make a long story short, he eventually lights this thing on fire, and the people realize that the earth is going to burn up from this huge holocaust that he's created.
0: The tunnel fire of pitch.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he, um, he grabs his children, and the people are pleading with him now to save them. And he says, no way, you didn't feed my kids. And he runs up to the top of Cow Mountain, he throws his magic rope into the air, and he starts climbing into the sky with his children clinging to him, and the earth burns up, except for that ridge, which was, you know, just, the, it got singed. And that's why it's red today. That's why that ridge is so red. Red Mountain is what they call it. And then other things happen. A flood comes. The coyote creates, basically, the destruction of the world. After the world is destroyed, the, these uh, animal people come back together, in that, and they began to establish a community a community that has a leader, a community that has certain rules of conduct. And Coyote's nephew, Hawk, becomes very important in the development of this community. And from then on, you can see you know, how village life sort of emanated. So what, you know, so what does the story tell us? Why did Coyote take this revenge? Well, first of all, you have girls who are not participating in becoming family members, these girls that Coyote seduced. Secondly, Coyote over, you know, overstepped the bounds of human decency by raping them. Thirdly, the people ignored another human being, especially children. So you see, all these bad things happened, and Coyote wiped them out, <laughs> wiped out all the bad people, and then started all over again. That's just one story there, <laughs> there are many of them. That's an example of how these things came, came to be, how proper behavior, and by, through the telling of these stories, which were told, by the way, at night, in the dark. So they had profound impact both you know, symbolically and, and psychologically, uh, people learned you know, what, how you're supposed to act.
0: Vicki, these are wonderful stories. I'd, I'd love to hear more. But I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, thank and you. I want to ask you the question that I ask everyone at the end of an mm-hmm. interview, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book, either about what you've been talking about? What comes to mind is the book Deep Valley by uh, Aginsky. Um, Or another book?
1: Well, actually, that is an interesting book. It's an interesting book because the Aginskys were, in fact, um, Dr. Aginsky is still alive, um, were early anthropologists from Columbia University who established a field school in Ukiah from about 1935 to 1945. And they brought students here every summer. And what they were fascinated by was the relationships between groups of ethnically different people in the Ukiah Valley, which was quite radical for that time. They interviewed Italians, they interviewed town people in Ukiah, they interviewed ranchers, and they interviewed lots of Indians. And they came up with some very disturbing results about the absolute segregation and separation of these communities. Um, they also collected an enormous amount of ethnographic information and, in a very creative way, created a novel, which Deep Valley is, based on their ethnographic collection. And so, um, they portray um, Yukaya. Now, I told you yo meant South Valley, but the word Yo also has the connotation of deep or long. That's where the word deep valley comes from, and we have many things around us called deep valley. Um, in any case, that's what their book is about. It's a novel, and it's about Lake County and, and Mendocino County, and describes sort of uh, eastern and uh, central Pomo village life right before, just at the threshold of being um, overrun by Europeans.
0: Dr. Victoria Patterson, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: You're welcome.
0: Dr. Victoria Patterson is an anthropologist based in Ukiah, California. The book that she recommends is Deep Valley by Bernard Aginsky. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541, and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, UKIAH, California, 95482. Christina honested is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.